Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Man, it is a Romans 8 kind of day. We got you know, Jay talking about the songs we're singing. There's nowhere we can hide where Jesus' love hasn't come after us. Uh, I am so excited to be here. Welcome, welcome. Uh, my name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us for the first time, you're a little late, uh, but that's okay, uh, because we've been in a three-part, you're not really late, I'm kidding, you're not late. But we've been in the three-part series, the Jamboree series, celebrating Easter, uh, celebrating our second birthday two Sundays ago. Um, and we've been kind of structuring the sermons in such a way to build a case. Uh, we've been making a case for Jesus. Um, uh, and, and today we're sort of finishing that. Before we do, real quickly, next Sunday we're kicking off a new series, which I'm really excited about, called The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, but it feels like over the last couple years, there have been a lot of talk and very loud talk about politics, political structures, uh, political opinions, uh, ideologies, and where does the church fall in all this? And we want to look at some of these questions. Uh, just so you know, the church does have a very strong political opinion. Might not be how it's been talked about in the news, but we do. So we're gonna ask a lot of these types of questions over the next couple weeks. That kicks off next week. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, it's gonna be terrifying. We're all gonna be in this together as a family. So be here, bring a friend. It's gonna be great. Cool, will you pray with me? And then we'll jump into today's topic. Lord Jesus, we, we turn our faces towards you. Over the last couple of weeks, as we've been making the case, we've been considering data that what if the most likely explanation to the accounts of your life that your first followers wrote down, the most likely explanation is that you are exactly who you say you are that you are God in the flesh who has come to deliver the Father's message, has come to die, to die a death that we weren't able to die ourselves, has been raised to life again, and now has reconciled all creation back to God, to the love of God through you alone. As we've been considering it and as we consider it now, what it might look like to hear your voice. I pray for every heart in this room. I don't know what condition they came in. I don't know their thoughts about you. But I pray for an openness and a willingness to consider your voice today, to hear it clearly. It's your name we pray, amen. <laughs> Yes, he got it. He definitely got it. All right, so we've been in the series, The Jamboree, and what we did uh, two weeks ago was we looked at the gospel accounts. We looked at the historical accounts of Jesus of Nazareth, and we made the case that what if the most likely conclusion when we look at this is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the truth, that Jesus is somehow in some way God in the flesh. And then last week for Easter, we considered the claims around the resurrection, 
Um, and we made the case that if we're looking at all this data, what if the most likely conclusion is that somehow, in some way, though we're still figuring out the implications of it and what it means, Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. So then today what we're doing is putting all that together, saying, okay, what now? What now? And we've used the example of like hiring someone for a job, right? If you were hiring someone for a job, the first thing you would do is you would get their resume and you'd call their references. Makes sense. What are you doing? You're gathering data. You're looking at their resume. You're talking to people. You're gathering data to see if they would be compatible, if it would fit in your company. And on paper, you might, it might look like they would be perfect for your company, right? But you don't fully know this experientially until you hire them, give them a chance. Today we're looking at, on paper, it seems that the most likely conclusion is that Jesus is who he says he is. What would it look like to listen to his voice? And as I was preparing for this, originally I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be aimed more for people who maybe have never heard God's voice. But over the last couple of weeks, I'm just going to be real with you guys. I've been in battle. <laughs> There's been a lot going on in my life. Um, a lot of storms, a lot of circumstances beyond my control. And I realize that in God's wisdom, this message wasn't even, it wasn't just for if you're that person in the room who's never heard the voice of God but it was for me too. And it's for you, whoever you are. I believe that this is a message for all of us here that God might be inviting us into a, a next stage of our relationship. And so I, I'm, I'm expectant for what's gonna happen. So how might this data lead me to open up my heart and life to the possibility that God in Jesus is speaking to me? And what is he saying? What does this mean? The first thing I want to say to all of us here is when we consider this, you don't get certainty in this life. You don't get certainty with Jesus. You get love. That's what you get. I'm going to read a passage from Matthew chapter 12. This is an example. Uh, Jesus is talking to Pharisees. Pharisees, if you don't know, they're like the, the Jewish pastors of the day, like me. They're the people who should know a lot about God and do. And so he's having a conversation with them. Um, and just a little context, he just previously healed someone. There was someone who was deaf and mute and they received their hearing uh, and their, their uh, ability to speak. So he just healed someone and he's having a conversation. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 12. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now he's clearly speaking to his death and resurrection, which is to come. But the question I wanna ask uh, for, for this at first is, why is it wicked and adulterous to ask for a sign, right? They're like, we want to see a sign from you. And he's like, you wicked and adulterous generation. Why is that wicked and adulterous? And I think the reason for it is because they just got a sign. He just healed a man who was deaf and mute. And that wasn't enough for them, which means they're not really asking for a sign. They're asking for certainty. They want proof. They want ironclad control. 
And that's an impossible request, hence the adulterous part. So my wife's name is Anna. And imagine this, imagine in this given day, Anna like does, goes out of her way, does thing after thing after thing to reveal her love for me. Like I'm a guy um, who, who loves uh, words of affirmation. Uh, it's, if you're not familiar with the five love languages, that's all good. If you are, then you know what I'm talking about. But I, I, love, I love when people tell me how great I am. I need that, all right? I need that. Um, and I also love acts of service. So like many times if I come home and it's just one of those stressful days, as much as I wish it wasn't possible, as much as, as, much as like we're, we're a team doing this together, if she just cleans the dishes, I feel so loved. I do. So imagine if like Anna does thing after thing after thing, showing her love for me. And then at the end of the day, I look at her and I go, baby, that's great, but can I just get one more thing? Can you just give me one more? I get slapped, right? And deservedly so. Because what am I asking? I'm not asking for a sign of her love. She just gave me sign after sign after sign. I'm asking for control of her. I'm asking for certainty. How do I know without a shadow of a doubt that you love me? The creator behind the world is summed up. We'll read about it later in 1 John. God is love. The creator, the substance of existence is summed up with the word love. Interestingly, I was listening to a podcast and neuroscientists are, are studying whether actually human brains are hardwired to love. And there's really fascinating evidence coming out that they in fact are hardwired to love. Now that has to be nurtured, which is, that's bonkers, guys, if our brains are actually are hardwired to love. Anyway, um, but we say that the creator is summed up with this word, love, that this whole existence, it was all about, it's all heading toward and operating through love. But love is a relational concept, is it not? Love is a relational concept. Love entails two free beings, two free creatures who surrender, who give up, their self-will, who give up what they really want and choose to be for the other person. Choose to want to see the other person flourish. Love, love is exacting and love is jealous. I think, I think sometimes we're in trouble in our, our, our modern world with modern notions of love. Because I, I often find, even in myself, that sometimes when I say I love a person, Really what I mean is it's a form of cowardice. I don't love them. I'm, 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 I want to sort of prop them up as much, much as possible, but I don't want to enter into the tough, nitty-gritty stuff of relationship. In our present-day uh, culture, conflict often signals the end of relationship, doesn't it? We're so terrified of having conflict with people, which is ironic. Because if we really want to enter into true love where two beings so choose, two people so choose one another, it's as if they're one, you're not gonna get to that place but through conflict. Conflict should signal the beginning of love, not the end of love, it's the beginning. But anyway, I digress there. Love is a relational concept. It's two free people choosing to surrender what they most want for themselves to see the other person flourish, to see the other person not fall into harm, to challenge the other person when they're making decisions that might be destroying themselves or destroying others. That's love. Love is kind and patient. It cannot be coerced. It cannot be manipulated. It has to be freely chosen surrender. And that's what Jesus is ultimately about. He is the love of God in the flesh. 
Jesus is God surrendering himself, being exacting, coming to form a free relationship with the world, with you and with me, to see the world come back alive, to see the world that is in its sin. And what I mean when I say that word, sin comes from the Greek hamartana, which means to miss the mark. Uh, Aristotle uses that phrase to describe an archer whose arrow misses the bullseye. It hamartanoed. It missed the mark. There is an ideal for the world. The ideal is the world that is perfectly united with God in love. But it is not that. It has fallen short. And therefore, there's something within us and there's something in the, the genetic DNA that doesn't want love, that actually wants to preserve itself. Sin and death are kind of like blockages in our beings such that God's love can't get in. And when Jesus comes and he dies and he's resurrected, the blockage is removed. Now, God's love is present in the sinful human condition. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, God's love is present in the dead human condition. Why? Because Jesus, who in the very form God entered and surrendered himself even unto death. God's love is in every stretch of the creation, every stretch of the universe, which is what Jay was talking about with Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Nothing, absolutely nothing. No principalities, no powers, no heights, no depths, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That is what is being offered the world. That is what is being offered you and offered me. Love, true love. Not, not some vague notion of like we sort of are afraid of conflict. No, true love, which is jealous, which is wants to see you flourish and come alive. That's what's being offered. But that means, all this being the case, if we have certainty, as the Pharisees were asking, then it's no longer a free choice, right? It's been chosen for us. Because if I have certainty of God's love, then I become a robot. It's been chosen for me. And he won't give us that because God is love. Love is relational and requires your free willing of it, your free surrendering to it, to pursue intimacy. And God refuses to take that away from you. Every single day when you wake up, he refuses to violate your agency. He refuses to coerce you into anything. He only invites you to be in relationship with him every single day. So Jesus says, look, the final sign you're gonna get is the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be in the earth for three days and I'm going to be raised to life again. And if you still won't believe the love of God after that, then perhaps nothing will change your mind. If that still doesn't convince you how much God loves you, how far he's willing to go to be with you, I don't know what will because <laughs> I refuse to take away your choice. I refuse to violate that. You don't get certainty. But if you're open to receiving the love of God through Jesus, you can have that. You can have that. So then if that's true, if you don't get certainty, but you get love, well, what are we listening for? What does it mean to be open to relationship 
with Jesus. Uh, a couple weeks back, I preached a sermon, and uh, there's a young woman here who's a daughter of, of some people in our community, and she came up to me, and she was like, hey, have you heard about this uh, concept bounded versus centered sex? I was like, no, what is that? And she told me about it. She was like, it's basically what you preached on. And I was like, cool, let me listen to it. So she sent me a podcast and information, and it was really cool. And I think it was very visual, and it helped uh, help me understand more what it is I'm saying, and I think what it is that we're being invited into. So we're going to have a little math lesson right now. Talk about bounded and centered sets. So bounded sets, you didn't know you're getting math today, right? The end of April. You're welcome. You're all pollinated too much. You're welcome. We're doing math now. (laughs) Bounded sets, I think, are how most people think of Christianity. I think it's how most people think of religion. I think it's very common to the human nature. What are bounded sets? There it is, right? There's There's a red line, and there are some people who are inside, and some people who are outside. And that red line defines the core set of behaviors, the core set of practices, the core set of beliefs that if you ascribe to, puts you in the in-group, and if you don't ascribe to, leaves you in the out-group, right? Now, what are the benefits of a bounded set? The benefits are that it's safe. It's very safe. You know exactly what's expected. There's certainty there. It is clearly defined and clearly guarded. The one major problem I see with bounded sets, though, is since when are relationships safe? Name for me one relationship that is safe. Especially if what I'm defining as relationship is love, this relational concept, where two free beings choose. They can't force the other. They can't coerce the other. They choose to be in relationship. They choose to surrender their self-will to the other. When is that ever going to be safe? It reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've ever uh, read that series. They're phenomenal. But in the second one, uh, the character Aslan is like the metaphor for uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's God. And uh, he's he's, uh, uh, imagined as a giant lion, a great lion. And um, Uh, There's another character, Mr. Beaver, who's a boss. And Mr. Beaver is talking with uh, the four children who are in Narnia. Long backstory. I'm just going to skip that part. Basically, uh, uh, Mr. Beaver's talking to Lucy, and none of the four children have ever met Aslan. They've never met God. And, or talking to Susan, I should say. And Susan asks Mr. Beaver, goes, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver goes, safe? Haven't you been listening to what I'm telling you? Of course he's not safe. Aslan is not safe at all, but he's good. He's the king. And I think that's what we're getting at here. Relationships are not safe, but perhaps you can be in a relationship with one who is good, who is trustworthy, who is credible and faithful. The major problem with bounded sets is since when are relationships safe? I'm reminded of Stanley Hauerwas's line, beware of those who tell you they're in a happy marriage because you can be sure someone lost a long time ago. And I think there's some truth to that. That like relationships is this constant battling for each other's hearts, constant dying to self to reach each other. Now you might be sitting there and thinking, wait, I want a relationship that's clearly defined. I want a relationship that's clearly guarded, right? And that makes sense. We want to know what behaviors contribute to healthy relationships. What behaviors or beliefs will destroy a healthy relationship? 
And there are some behaviors and some beliefs that destroy relationships so badly, it can be next to impossible to rebuild it. This is true. But what's the basis of the relationship? That's what I'm getting at. And the basis of a relationship is not the beliefs and not the behaviors. The foundation, the basis of a relationship is the choice to surrender. The choice to say, I choose you. I am for you. I give up my life to see yours flourish. That's the basis of relationship. So to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is never fundamentally, and hear me, because this is really important. It's never fundamentally about a set of beliefs or a set of behaviors. That will come, but that will come later. It is fundamentally a choice to see how God has already chosen us through Jesus and to lay down our life to choose him back. That is the core. And then out of that relationship, we start learning what what is true and what is right and what is good that will lead us to a healthy relationship. The church, we are a group of people that do not primarily share a bounded set of beliefs or practices. We do share them insofar as we are pursuing a relationship with Jesus. But the basis of why we are here is because my, I have surrendered my life to Christ. I have said, my life means nothing to me. I give up what I most want because now what I most want is to see him, is to be loved by him, is to love him back. And out of that, to learn what is healthy and right and good about loving each other. But the basis is the choice into relationship. So I'm never, I will never invite you to become a Christian. I will never invite you to join the church. I mean, I, I probably will invite you to do some of those things, but not, you know, not in the context of right here, right now, okay? I'm not gonna invite you. The invitation in this space is never to be a Christian, to join the church, because that will perpetuate our human propensity that's a lot of P words right there. That will perpetuate our human propensity for fear and self-preservation. And guess what happens in bounded sets often? It becomes us versus them. And guess where the problem never rests? Never rests with us. It's always them, their fault. I don't know if you know this, but I feel like in our culture, we have enough us versus them issues. That's not what we're getting at. Leo Tolstoy writes, everyone wants to change the world. No one wants to change themselves. And the gospel fundamentally says, do you want to change the world? It starts with you giving up yourself to follow Jesus. It starts with that fundamental death, giving up everything that you want more than a relationship with him, to be loved by him, to reciprocate that love. Sin is, sin is a tough word. It is. Like I explained earlier, it means to miss the mark. But it can mean it in so many different ways. It can mean, like I've explained myself before, uh, I was born with a congenital disorder called Golden Heart Syndrome. Uh, I came out of the womb with a lot of brokenness in my body. I have scoliosis. I was missing a left jaw. My left ear wasn't there. I've had a lot of surgeries in my life. That would be an example of sin. And just truthfully, because my face has missed the mark of the ideal, I can see this room and that 
most people here, so far as I can tell, came out with a complete left jaw, with a complete filled out uh, face. I did not. My face has missed the mark. There's, a, there's an impulse within the universe that continues to separate itself from God, to miss the mark. But it can also be personal, right? Like think about this. Someone wrongs you on the subway. Um, maybe they, they dart in front of you in the door. Your first instinct, if you're like me, is not to say, oh, I forgive you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what my first instinct is. <laughs> right? Why does that come more readily to the mind than the other? Or, or if you think about it, um, you feel like there's something you want to hide. As Joseph was talking about, there's something you want to hide from a friend or a spouse. Why does it feel easier to lie than to just be fully truthful? There's something within us that wants to continue separating ourselves from love, from true exacting love and from one another. There's something within us that wants to hide. That's sin. And God is saying, when we see Jesus on the cross, that there is nothing in this creation, there is no impulse of your heart where his love is not able to reach and say, will you lay it down to receive my love? Will you be with me? I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Talking about this bounded set, right? It says the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are pastors. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. At Hope Brooklyn, one of the things we say is that we discover doubt and surrender together. And all three of those words are super important for us because those words seem to be the core of any love relationship, aren't they? What are you doing in a relationship of love? You're discovering the other person. You're discovering yourself a lot of times. You're doubting what you're discovering as you discover new information, but then you're choosing to surrender to the other person. You're choosing to be for them. That's what love relationships look like. Which is why here in this space, we're not invited into a bounded set. That's not how we think of ourselves. The alternative to a bounded set is a centered set. A centered set. And again, C.S. Lewis, there's our, our picture. A centered set. In arithmetic, there is one right answer. But there are many wrong ones. And some are more wrong than, than others. So in a centered set, what you have, instead of an in-group and an out-group, where some in the middle and there's like this very rigid line uh, uh, dividing who's in and who's out. In a centered set, you have just that. You have a center. And everyone else is in relation to the center and they're in direction. Some are moving closer to the center. Some are moving further away. We don't know which way people are moving. We just know there is a center and there's directionality around it. And for us, the center of our community, the center of history, the right answer to the question of what's wrong with the world, 
the center of the cosmos is Jesus. In him, we see something that we don't see anywhere else. Irenaeus was a, a second century theologian, and he said, he has this really like, incredible line where he writes, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that's what we see in Jesus. We see a human being who most is worthy of that title, a human being, 100% human. We also see the reason, way, the reason why he's able to be a human being fully alive is because he's God in the flesh as well. And ultimately, that's what's happening to us. We're either growing toward the center we're either making choices every morning to sacrifice, to surrender, to grow to the center, to become a human being fully alive, or we're making choices that are taking us away from the center. So at the, on the last day, there's gonna be 100% little Christ or 100% little antichrist. There's gonna be those who have entered into the relationship of love with God and those who have continued at every turn to keep themselves away from it. The truth is that through relationship, we learn the story of how this world came into existence. We learn what went wrong. We learn what continues to go wrong inside of us out there. We learn who we are. We learn where we're headed. And it's quite fun too. I just want to say this, parts of it. It's fun because you can see how the truth of Jesus is found in the truth of the world. For example, a couple months back, I preached a sermon where we looked at... Um, we looked at um, uh, neurotransmitters in the brain, dopamine and serotonin. And basically, uh, well, the thesis of this, of this doctor is that if you want to be happier, you need more serotonin. That's what you need. And that's what we're all struggling from because we've ordered our Western world around dopamine and not serotonin. But the, one of the, the last things he says is one of the best ways to raise your serotonin levels is to cook meals with people. That's one of the best ways. Which is remarkable because when you look in the Bible and you look at what God has been telling his people to do for thousands of years, whether it's the people of Israel or the church, the premier, the primary thing he tells us to do is to cook meals together. He tells us to share the Passover and he tells us to share the Lord's Supper. The primary action of this new creation, these people who are learning to be in relationship with God is to share a meal. That's just one example of how it's out there and it's also already in our story. And maybe you're wondering, well, why do I need Jesus? Why can't I just love? And the reason being is because Jesus is God in the flesh. Love is the substance of existence. So we don't know the full expression of love outside of him. When we look at the story of Jesus and we look at where it ends, we see love in its fullness, which is why it's the center of the set, which is why through him, it's able to spread outward. And it always starts from the inside out, which is why for the church, what we talk about is not how to make them better or what's wrong with them. What we talk about is how we can surrender our self-will and love better. How we, from it starts here with me. I don't need to change the world. I need to change myself. I need to surrender. I need to repent. 
I need to receive God's love through Christ. And out of that, I get to start becoming more like him. And it starts sweeping. I can't love. We need Jesus because I can't love as I wish I could. And I think we just sort of explain that. When you finally reach the point where you go through a day and every time someone jumps in front of you on the subway, your instinct is to offer forgiveness to them, then you can tell me a different way. (laughs) But until that point, there's something in us that still lacks. There's something in us that wants to separate ourselves from God and from one another, that doesn't want to extend grace and forgiveness, but actually wants to curse and do violence and lie and manipulate. Jesus is the fullest manifestation of love. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that one who would lay his life down for his friends. And that's a hard thing, I realize that. It's a hard thing to say that what we're looking for is not just love, what we're looking for is Jesus. But here's the thing, when you get Jesus, you get all the best things. You get love in its fullness, but it comes through him. So the invitation in a centered set is not to take on a certain set of beliefs or a certain set of practices, not at first. The invitation of a centered set is to surrender to Jesus's love, to surrender to Jesus's exacting, painful, beautiful love, to learn from him, to be in relationship with him. And again, building on the last two weeks, it's also because I think it's the true story of the world. I do think he's alive. I do think he's God in the flesh. And I've had tremendous experiences with um, a transcendent being that felt a lot like grace and love and that answer to the name of Jesus, which is why I'm pursuing that relationship. But that's the invitation. That's the invitation. I'm not at the center. You're not at the center. He's at the center. So you don't get certainty. You get love. You're not invited to join the church. You're invited to be in relationship with Jesus. So then if we do take a step into relationship with Jesus, what will we hear? What will happen? I want to say three things of what uh, this new family looks like that is following Jesus, that is in relationship with Jesus. Here are the three things that we get. The first thing you get is unconditional love. Grace is the biblical word we use for it. See, when we're looking at Jesus on the cross, when we're looking at God suffocating and bleeding out and dying, Paul sums up that image and he describes it like this. He says, he, he meaning God, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And as I've already explained, Sin is a missing of the mark. It's the missing of the ideal. It's not to be a human being fully alive. And whether you miss the mark by a little or you miss the mark by a lot, you still miss the mark. The ideal is the human fully alive, fully surrendered to God's love, fully in relationship with God. That perfectly intimate relationship. And if you don't have that, which none of us do, that's the point because we always curse the person who jumps in front of us on the subway. The lie feels easier than the truth. 
We covet what each other has. We're never content with what we have. If that's the case, then we're separated from God. We're separated from love. And in that space, there's a lot of room for fear and self-preservation. There's a lot of room for hatred and for wild desires and for violence to enter in. And sin is that impulse to separate and to remain separated. And the further away from relational intimacy we get, the deeper and closed we become into self-absorption and, and the, more, the viler, the crueler, the more coercive our lives become, the more secretive they become. That happened in God's creation. That's the world we're living in. And I don't think I need to sell that to us. We can look outside and see. We can look within ourselves if we're being truthful. And I think that's one of the tough things about the modern West is because at least for a lot of us in this room, we have so much, we don't get a chance to see uh, the sin within us. We know that we're gonna get a paycheck each month. Most of us in this room, we're people of privilege. We know that we have sort of these core relationships, which maybe aren't great, but they're good enough, right? Maybe we don't enter into deeply truthful spaces, but they're okay. We know that we have uh, technologies that make our lives easy enough. So it can kind of distract us and numb us from truly coming to, to terms with what's really inside of us, what's really going on in this world. And that impulse to destroy and not to love that impulse to curse and not to bless. That's what's going on in our world. And I think um, the further away we get, the more evil it becomes, which is what the evil one is. The evil one is the impulse to sin, to separate to the nth degree. But if we're separated from life, if we're separated from love, the separation results in what? In us wounding one another and us hurting one another out of fear and wounds bleed. And what happened to wounds that continue to bleed? We die, which is what we've seen in this world, that no matter what kind of life we live, good or bad, it's gonna end in death. But on the cross, we see God enter into those two modes of existence that God had never known. Because sin is ultimately separation from God. And on the cross, God becomes one who is separated from God. He takes that impulse onto himself and God dies as the just result of that, which means God's love has now entered into every mode of existence. God's love is present in the sinful human existence. God's love is present in the dead human existence and is able for those who will it, for those who want it, for those who surrender to it, to come to life again. So the first thing you get is unconditional love. You get grace at your worst. And I think we have experiences of that. The most powerful experiences of grace that I have are those moments when I feel the most deserving of death. I don't know if you've ever had that, where you definitely messed up. You definitely did something wrong. You hurt someone uh, deeply. You hurt someone and you've been caught. You know that you deserve to be punished. You know that you deserve death in a metaphorical sense. You deserve retribution. But instead, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, instead of being hurt back, they instead offer you love. They offer you forgiveness. 
They say, it's okay, it's done. It's done. That's grace. And that moves you in your bones in a way that not much else does. That is cathartic. And the gospel is God entering at your worst and saying, do you receive my love? I see you here. I see you at your worst. And yet still, I want to be with you here. I want to be in relationship. Will you receive it? That's the first thing you get. You get unconditional love. The second thing of why we would follow Jesus is because relationship with Jesus has made me better at other relationships. This comes from Galatians 5. Paul is writing, and this is what he says. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But the fruit of the Spirit, catch this, the fruit of one who is in relationship with Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've given up our lives. Instead, we say we want to receive his love more than anything else. And therefore, we receive his love through his spirit. And since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited and provoking and envying each other. Just to sort of spell it out, the type of person Jesus wants to create the type of world he's trying to establish is a world full of people who are loving, deeply loving, deeply sacrificial to others, full of joy, full of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and put myself in there. I, I want a world full of those types of humans. I do. Sorry. I want a world of humans that look like this. And maybe your question is, well, why don't all Christians look like that? What's going on? Why do people who do not call themselves followers of Jesus look more like that? Once again, I would refer you back to the centered set. We don't know which people's hearts are moving. We don't know who people are truly in relationship with and which way they're going. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of one who has received the love of God through Jesus, allows this type of stuff to cultivate in you. And you, you may notice I've been using the word surrender a lot today. And surrender is the right word. It has a distaste to it, doesn't it? It doesn't seem desirable. There's a biblical word for it and it's called repentance, to repent. But repentance, uh, all it means is to turn around, to turn the other direction. So what we're doing is recognizing there's nothing in us that can reach that ideal wholeness. There's nothing in us that can be this type of person. And we see it in Jesus and we're surrendering to his love for us. And out of that, it starts to, to shape us in a certain way. But surrender is the right word. We discover doubt and surrender together. So the second thing you get, you get unconditional love personally. You also get transformation in the way we relate with one another. The third thing we get is the restoration of the earth. Shalom is the biblical word. 
From 2 Corinthians, this is what we read. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, reconciliation is the heart of God's message. That whole, the, the reason you're a Christian is that when you die, you go to heaven and we don't care about what we do here on earth. That's bogus, that's not true. That's not what Jesus is inviting us into. What he's saying is that when we, when we accept Jesus' love, we start to notice things about the world. We start to notice that it's a little imbalanced or actually a lot imbalanced, that some people seem to get a lot and others get a little. We notice that structures seem to favor some people and not favor others. And sometimes these structures are on the the basis of really arbitrary factors. We notice that some communities, local and global, have access to tons of resources and other communities don't. And that reconciliation, that that starts going through our minds and our hearts, it's like, this shouldn't be. This isn't how the new creation is supposed to look. We're supposed to be reconciled one to another. So how can I live like this if there's others who don't have as much? We have to restore this. The structures that go into making a kingdom need to be reconciled with God too. So the the people who follow Jesus, we become those who pursue justice. We've become those who pursue a neighborhood where everyone loves each other as if they're very own. And the only way we can love each other like that is if we've first been loved by God. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he added on to it. He goes, and the second is just like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. God has always had a heart for societies marginalized. He's always had a heart that cares about the type of world that we live in and the structures that make that world possible. And just so you know, the modern orphanage movement, modern hospitals, and universities were begun by Christians because it fits the worldview of those who are participating in the restoration of the earth. So I'm gonna invite the band back up now. And just to recap some of what was said. You receive grace and acceptance at your ugliest through surrendering of yourself into relationship with Jesus, you become a human being fully alive or you begin the process of becoming a human being fully alive full of love and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control. You get to work to help create the world that's coming, that is aimed at pursuing justice for all people, reconciling all to one another into a single family, where Jesus is the one through whom God can love the world back to life. I don't know about you, but that sounds amazing. I want to be that. Why don't we? whether you're someone who's never entered into a relationship with Jesus or for you and me, when we wake up each morning and we still feel this impulse and be like, ah, I don't know. Why is that the case? Why won't we step into it and surrender anew? There's an important passage in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, which interestingly 
It's quoted in all four accounts of Jesus' life by Jesus. He, he quotes this. And actually comes in a period where he's describing why people don't respond to his message. This is what he says. This says, this is the reason why. Speaking to people who don't respond, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear and, and they have closed their eyes. Other, uh, otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. I wouldn't condemn them. I wouldn't judge them. I would heal them. So he paints a picture of us as humans who are not fully alive. We're not sensitive to the touch of the wind. We've, to what our eyes are seeing or what our ears are hearing, we've, we've closed our eyes. We've stopped up our ears. That sin, that impulse to separate, we don't want a Lord. We don't want Jesus. Why? Because it comes through the recognition that I'm not in control of my life that actually there's more within me that I don't understand. There's more within me that seeks to do violence than seeks to bless or love. I don't want to admit that. That's humiliating. It's embarrassing. But that seems to be what's being expressed. Because if we do surrender, if we do repent, turn around, we get all the best things. We get what we most want to be that type of person, to receive unconditional love. But it comes through relationship with Jesus. In Psalm 95, we read, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The invitation for us is new every single day. We see him. He makes himself clear. He's given us the sign of Jonah. We see him. We see what we get. Love, abundant love, not just for us at our worst, but for the entire world. And the cost is the recognition that I can't do this by myself. I need his love. I need it over and over every single day. I can't grab control of my life. And that's the invitation. Today, if you hear that voice, if you feel that stir, I don't care if you've never surrendered or if you've surrendered hundreds of times, if you feel that stirring, surrender anew. Lay down what's in your hands so that he can fill it with something else. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know there are people in here who maybe have never prayed to you. There are people in here who have forgotten what it's like to pray. 
But the invitation this morning is the same. Will you surrender? Will you acknowledge that despite your best intentions, you cannot love the world as you wish you could? That the fullest expression of love is found in you, Jesus. And that we are only able to love ourselves and love others and love this world because he has first loved us. And so today, if you hear his voice, would you ask to receive his love? And I wanna invite everyone in this room because it's important, and I know it feels silly sometimes, but it's important to not just let things be in our hearts or our minds, but also let them manifest themselves in our bodies. In the same way, thank goodness that God's love did not remain enclosed, but was manifested in his son coming to earth. But I wanna invite you, if you today, wherever you are, whatever you would call yourself, it doesn't matter, but if you're willing to take a step and make yourself available to receiving the love of Jesus, would you put your palms right in front of you, face up in a posture of surrender. And the reason why the palms are face up and open is because often we go through our lives with our fists closed. We're holding on to things. We're holding on to doubt. We're holding on to bitterness. We're holding on to something about ourselves that we refuse to let go of. But anything that we are holding on to means that we cannot enter into that full intimate relationship with God. We cannot be a human being fully alive as we see Jesus is. Because as Jesus walked every single step, he held on to nothing but his love of the Father. And so with our palms open, we pray, Lord, we surrender. We give up the things that we've been holding on to and we make ourselves available for you to speak to us, to love us. Would you speak to us now and cement that love deep within our souls? Amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.